Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Glassford, and my co-host, Molly Herford, is actually away at Cyclocross Worlds, where there's been some big results in the women's races. If you haven't watched those two races, uh, the performances in those events are amazing. Some really good racing, so check those out. They're up on YouTube. Uh, but today on the show, we have Matt Fitzgerald, which we're really excited for. Both of us have enjoyed uh, pretty much every book he's written. But uh, today we talk about the endurance diet, which I know a lot of our consummate athletes are always wondering about diets and the latest trend and low carb and paleo and all this sort of stuff. So today Matt's here. Matt's known as sort of the more moderate, reasonable guy, but you know, sometimes that what's overlooked is that he's really good at distilling what's being done at the highest levels in research and the highest levels in actual performance, the stuff that counts, uh, and, and bringing it to you in sort of a, a digestible format. So today we get into the concepts in his book. He's got some, some main sort of habits or tenets uh, that are sort of the outline in his book. His book's very easy to read, so I recommend getting that. It's available now on Amazon. We'll link to all that stuff, of course. Um, but I think you'll enjoy this talk with Matt Fitzgerald where we go back and forth on the experiences that elites uh, have sort of gravitated towards in, in most endurance sports over the years and how that then relates to you, the, the regular person, the weekend warrior, the, the consummate athlete. So hopefully you enjoy that. Please let us know. Please check out uh, our show on both the consummateathlete.com, also on uh, iTunes, and if you can leave a review or maybe a rating, that would really help us get up there in that show ranking, get a few more lessons, and keep doing this, and improve audio quality even would be great. Um, any suggestions, always welcome. Thank you for listening, guys. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Before we get going, let's hear a word from our show's sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ provides life insurance for healthy, active people like yourself, dare I say, consummate athletes like yourself. They have competitive rates and a great website. If you can go check it out at healthiq.com slash consummate athlete, you'll help us out and you'll be helping yourself out by finding out a little bit more about life insurance, whether you need it, and what some options are. No pressure, just go check out the website, try a quiz. Thanks, guys. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited. We're here with Matt Fitzgerald, who is a sports nutritionist, author, nutrition consultant, and coach for hundreds of athletes, and one of my all-time favorite uh, athletic authors, I'd say. I think I've been reading Matt's stuff for... God, years before I even started writing about this. So I kind of blame you for a lot of where my, my career has gone. Matt. I'll, I'll gladly take that. <laughs> He's also the author of one of my all-time favorite books, Iron War. So we're going to have to link to that one in the show notes because I think that's also part of what prompted our return or my return to Iron Man that's going to happen this summer. So... I'm, I'm not going to thank you for that one. That one, I'm, I'm a little upset about. <laughs> but we're here to talk about his new book, The Endurance Diet, which I just said I was one of the nerds that plowed through it through it in the, the first time I got my hands on it. Um, I'd say it's probably your, your best nutrition book so far, and you've written a few of them. So first of all, Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you. 
so for our listeners who, you know, haven't read everything that you've written, uh, can you give us a little bit of your background, uh, both as an athlete and as a writer and coach? Yeah, so I've been doing both for, uh, you know, the athletics and the writing for a very long time. Uh, inherited both habits from my father, who's a writer and was a run- runner when he still had two hips. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was just always going to be on the path I'm still on, uh, low these many years later. Um, I did not necessarily plan to put the two together, the, the writing and, and the sports, but that's that's how it worked out. Um, I think my first uh, book, uh, it was a training guide for triathletes published in 2003, and I'm, I'm still at it. All right. Yeah, I think that was, gosh, like three years before I got into triathlon. So I think your book was probably one of the first I picked up about triathlon. Uh, years in Joe Friel's. So yeah. I've been reading pretty much since you've been writing them. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Um, so talk to us about the endurance diet. What prompted that? I mean, you've already had a couple books out about nutrition. So where, where'd the impetus for this one come from? Yeah. So, you know, I, um, you know, one thing that I think anyone who writes about, you know, diet for endurance athletes encounters is a lot of contrary opinions. And it doesn't matter really what mm-hmm. your opinions are. Um, the people you're trying to help are going to be hearing, other things from other sources, and I experience that frustration all the time. And I think a lot about how how do I, you know, sort of separate myself from the noise and and get people to buy into what I'm offering, which obviously I think is, uh, you know, you know the the best alternative uh, for athletes looking to use nutrition to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one thing that that has struck me um, is that you know science or reductionistic pseudoscience anyway can be used <laughs> to make to justify just about any diet mm-hmm. um, from the mainstream to the crazy um, and you know I spend a lot of time interacting with it's one of the you know, the most enjoyable parts of my job interacting with world-class endurance athletes um, and, and I've seen you know I, I have I have eaten with them I have yeah. talked to them about their diet and and I noticed that they, they tend to have a pretty consistent way of eating, you know, even, you know, in different countries and different sport disciplines. Um, and they're not getting into all these weird fads that a lot of competitive recreational athletes do. So I thought, you know what, why not just kind of put science to the side uh, for, for a moment and just take more of a monkey see, monkey do approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, you know, in the real world, there are certain patterns, dietary patterns that are clearly working for the most successful athletes. And, um, you know, that's the shtick that I, you know, sell to recreational athletes. It's my, it's the way I eat myself. I know it can work just as well for everyday athletes as it does for the elites. So that's what this book is, is about. It's, it's really about giving readers a seat at the table with the same athletes I've had an opportunity to eat with. And, you know, I think it's powerfully convincing, you know, when you just see mm-hmm. how consistent these patterns are, the results they produce. And then, you know, if you give it a try, you'll get the results. And thereafter, you'll be a lot less inclined to be seduced by the re- reductionistic, uh, reductionistic pseudoscience. 
Absolutely. So, you know, with that in mind, why do you think it is that the recreational athletes are always kind of going after like the next big diet craze? Because I mean, I've written books on nutrition too, and I still fall into that category, I'd say, while the pro ones have their, you know, standards and habits that they stick to. Yeah, you know, the the way to answer that, and I, I do it in the book, is to look at how elite endurance athletes end up eating the way they do. And, you know, here's what happens in a typical case. Um, You'll have, you know, an athlete who starts cycling or running or swimming or whatever, maybe at, you know, age 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever. And they, because they are genetically gifted, you know, they've won the lottery, uh, the talent lottery, they kick butt. Um, Mm -hmm. But their diet is just whatever mom and dad feed them at home, and it may be just kind of average with nothing special about it, but it doesn't matter because, you know, they're competing against the other 13-year-olds, and they have Olympic-level talent, so they kick butt. They Mm -hmm. continue to kick butt all the way through high school. Things get a little tougher in college, but they're still the most talented, and they kick butt still. Then they turn pro, and suddenly, you know, their peers, their competition are other people who are just as talented as they are, and... At this point, they may start to lose for the first time in their lives. Um, and so the natural re- reaction to that is to, to, to look at what the winners are doing, the people who are beating you, that you're not doing. Um, and I give specific examples of, of this in the book. Um, so, you know, that will happen with training and it will happen with diet too. And, and you know, what, what the winners are doing with their diet is, you know, was what I describe as the endurance diet. So very sensibly, you know, this, the rookie pro who's losing for the first time is just going to change their diet so that it looks more like the diet of the person who's kicking their butt yep, in, yep. In, in races. And it's usually, it's not anything crazy because, you know, if you're a professional athlete and your livelihood depends on, on, uh, you know, your performance results, you're not going to get cute. You're not going to play games. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're willing to do whatever it takes, but you're not going to do something, you know, silly just because. So these athletes, they don't like, they don't just hit the reset button on the way they eat and just, you know, start over with something radical. They change their diet as little as necessary, you know, to bring it up to snuff so that it, it matches the basic, you know, core patterns that they see in the winner's diets. So, you know, it's just like, it's like the endurance diet, as I describe it, is just this, this um, standard that's passed down from one generation to the next generation of elite runners, but recreational runners, they don't have that opportunity. Like we Mm -hmm. don't, we're not surrounded by, that's not our milieu. So, you know, and often many of us come to the sport as adults. And so we're much more susceptible to just, you know, shtick. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're, you know, a a typical, say you're a, you know, a, a 30 year old, you know, recreational triathlete, you're new to the sport, maybe you're even a little bit overweight, it's easy to convince that person that the reason they're not performing better or losing weight is that they eat meat or that they don't eat nearly enough fat or, you know, whatever. You know, so how do they know otherwise? They have no way to know. So it's much easier, uh, you know, to convince these people that, you know, something strange that the elite athletes don't do, you know, is is what they that's what they really need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot easier to convince people that they need to do this like huge crazy thing versus weirdly enough just these like mild shifts to what they've been doing for their whole lives. Like yeah. 
it just seems a lot more exciting and intriguing to, yeah, like go vegan or go, you know, crazy high fat, no carb, just. Right. It's, right. Because, you know, if, if you're looking for like a breakthrough, like yeah. I, I want a radical breakthrough. Well, you know, doesn't that require a radical diet? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's a, there's a certain logic to that. And I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right that that plays into it as well. Yeah, we definitely fall into that trap. So in the book, Matt, you used five five countries. Is that sort of where you sort of drew your comparisons from? Yeah, so, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book was to give my excuse, uh, myself an excuse to travel all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> so even if, even if I didn't sell a single copy, I would have some cool memories. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> but I did, you know, because I wanted maximum diversity. Because I'm, I'm trying to make a case here. I, I really... I want I want readers to finish this book being utterly convinced that I've given them the truth, you know, that I'm not just making it up that elite endurance athletes share a common core diet. So I you know, I wanted a lot of evidence. So um so I wanted a lot of diversity in sport disciplines, you know, not just running and cycling and triathlon, uh but you know, open water swimming, uh cross country skiing, rowing, you name it. I threw it all in there. Um and then I wanted to hit all five continents, all five you know major inhabited continents. Um, so there's each of the, the so the the endurance diet comprises five core habits, and each one of those sort of narratively is based in a different country that I actually went to, or in the case of Japan, the the athletes actually came to me, <laughs> or I met them halfway, as it were. But there's also a lot of other data because I I couldn't travel everywhere, so I also created sort of a standardized survey that I sent out everywhere, you know, every country I could possibly hit. It was almost like I put up a world map. I didn't actually do this, but that's the vision <laughs> I had, you know, a world map and stuck a thumbtack in every country, had a little celebration when I got, you know, someone from Sri Lanka, which I did, uh, <laughs> and, and what have you. Um, but yeah, there are five countries that I sort of kind of actually, you know, uh, sort of immersed myself in. Mm -hmm. I think it's funny. You and I kind of stumbled on sort of the same thing because I did something similar where I was talking to a bunch of pros on how they ate and I was going into it thinking like oh crap one of them's eating the antihistamine diet one of them's a vegan one of them's doing gluten-free whatever but then when it actually boiled down to it they were all all of like the pros that were doing well were still eating the same way even if you know they were labeling it something different it was still you know protein vegetables carbohydrates <laughs> right so. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that, you know, to my knowledge, I'm the first person who's actually claimed that elite endurance athletes all over the world share a, a common way of eating. And I think the reason no one else really observed that before, or at least spoke up about it, is that, you know, there are lots of superficial differences in the way people eat in different cultures. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I went to Kenya and, you know, ate with the runners there, and they eat ugali by the truckload. Ugali is like a, a corn porridge, cornmeal porridge type of thing. Well, you know, the Canadian cross-country skiers I spent time with don't eat any ugali. So, <laughs> so on that level, it's like, oh, their diet's completely different. Well, no, it's not, because they still had their own, you know, it's just, you know, ugali is just a bunch of starch and, and <laughs> Every, every environment I was in, athletes had some kind of go-to starch. Um, so superficially, yeah, there's, there's lots of differences. But underneath that level, at the level of you know, core habits, 
there was uh, you know a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. So what was your what made you make the decision to use habits for sort of the basis of the book? Because I thought that was the most interesting thing. Because I've been reading so much, it feels like this is like the year of habits. Right. Yeah. You know, I honestly just think that that's that's where it's at. You know, if 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 you know if we're trying to answer the question, um, you know, what is a good way to eat, or you know, if, if it's endurance performance. Uh, you're interested in, you know, what is the optimal way to eat, you know, to support endurance fitness. Um, there are a lot of ways, you know, conceivably that question could be answered, but I, I think really the answer does lie in core habits. You know, mm-hmm. th- there's a tendency, because we like to get all scientific, uh, so there's mm-hmm. a tendency to think, oh, it's like, you know, a certain number of milligrams of this nutrient or whatever, but that's that's not where it's at. <laughs> you know, these, these athletes, they're not even counting that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it really is a, a matter of um, uh, of habits, um, because it's not just it's not it's not just what you eat that matters too. It, it's how you eat, um, and and so you know how you eat is is habit. Um, so you know I, I just you know my my shtick is is no shtick. Like all I care about is being right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, like I want to be the guy who gets credit. For nailing it, so like, I, you know, I don't go into something like this, you know, sort of being attached to a certain answer. Uh, you know, I just like whatever the truth is, that's that's what I want to know, and you know, you know, just you know, that's where my observations led me is that there's you know just the set of core habits that are really the key, you know, to the results that elite endurance athletes get from from their eating. Mm-hmm. All right, so with that in mind, let's let's talk the five habits here. All right, which one makes the most sense to start with? Well, I mean, they are numbers. You can go in order. <laughs> I know. I feel like we accidentally but, wrote them down. You, Did we write them in order? You can, you can you can do whatever you want. Well, I mean, to me, why don't we start? You know, we're talking about the individuality that Molly sort of observed in in the different the vegetarian athlete versus the paleo athlete versus whatever. So why don't we start with individuality or eat for you? Which I know is the last one and the one that I almost forgot last time we talked. Right. So let's just get into that one first so I, I don't forget it. <laughs> so yeah, so, you know, I think probably when if, if someone who's listening to this conversation, um, you know, tries to speculate about what the book contains, they, they might assume, oh, you know, Matt's telling everyone they have to eat exactly the same way. And, and that's actually not the case at all. You know, mm-hmm. uh, of the five habits that, that constitute the endurance diet, four of them are sort of universals, you know, kind of rules that you can't get away with breaking. But the fifth one is individuality, um, you know, because, you know, er- every person is, you know, biologically, metabolically unique. So if you want to eat optimally, uh, you know, for your performance, it's probably not going to be you know, identical uh, to, you know, what, what ends up being optimal for your teammates. You know, I was struck when I went uh, to Spain um, and spent time at, at uh, a training camp for the Lato Yumbo uh, professional cycling team there. They had, you know, the whole team eating dinner, every, every meal together. And I just, you know, sat down with them and with my, you know, camera phone and my notebook, <laughs> probably annoying the heck out of them. <laughs> But what struck me was that, you know, no two plates were, the, were exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And when I, 
you know, when I would quiz the individual cyclists about, okay, you know, why are you eating this and why aren't you eating that, they always had a reason. And the reason was almost always based, sometimes it was just preference, like, you know, you know, I find kale disgusting or whatever. But often it was based on some sort of observation that they had had, sort of, you know, connecting cause and effect. It's like, you know, I, I don't eat as much meat as my teammates because I find it makes me gain weight or whatever. Um, so, so that's where the individuality comes in is, is that, um, and I found this generally that, you know, the highest level endurance athletes are really, really tuned into their bodies. It's striking. Um, and, you know, they kind of have to be. Um, and, and, but they use that to their advantage to sort of, they start off by, uh, you know, doing whatever their teammates are doing and whatever their nutritionists advise because we're all human and, and basically we, ha- we have to operate within the same framework. Um, you know, certain things work for everyone and certain things don't work for anyone. But, you know, once you're within inside that framework, you need to find your best place within it. And, you know, just through sort of, you know, mindfulness, uh, you, you know, these elite athletes are able to do that. And so we put some responsibility on you. Like a lot of fad diets, the one of the reasons people like them is that it is one size fits all. It's like mm-hmm. all the responsibility is off of you. Just do this and you'll be fine. Well, that's not really the case. You know, you'll be, you know, 80% of it is, is the universals, but the other 20% is sort of on you to figure out for yourself, you know, just by kind of paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, pro athletes have that kind of good sense of themselves, but for, I guess, you know, the more recreational ones, how, how do they learn what, what works for them and what doesn't? You know, some of it's going to be obvious, you know, if you have a food allergy or a major intolerance, that's going to hit you over the head. So, you know, that's, that's the low hanging fruit, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But there are, you know, there are subtler patterns uh, as well that are just a a little trickier, you know, it can be a little trickier to identify. I mean, the process starts with um, isolating or identifying a problem. I mean, you know, there's the old, that old saw, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) if, if you're happy with, you know, the results you're getting, there's no need to change anything. But if you start to notice that, um, you know, you're not recovering well from, from training or, you know, your fitness is stagnating for no obvious, you know, training-related re- uh, reason or you're having trouble, more trouble than in the past, shedding excess body fat, things like that, you know, then that should start a process of trying to identify a, a cause. And, you know, educating yourself will help you um, identify likely culprits, you know, because you can't just you've only got so much time. You can't experiment with everything. You, you have to do things that seem worth trying. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, you know, hunches will, will suggest themselves. Uh, you know, if something has changed in your diet recently, you know, the sort, you know sort of preceding the onset of the problem, uh, that can be helpful. Um, sometimes, you, you know, you just have to just go with your, your best hunch, um, you know, based on information uh, and, and, you know, see how that works out. If it doesn't, you know, Uh, try something else. And I I saw this playing out, you know, with, you know, Olympic level athletes, they, they, they will have a problem. They will take a guess as to what the problem, what caused it dietarily. They'll, you know, make some kind of change, sort of like an elimination type of thing or or whatever, see what happens. And sometimes that's not the answer. And then they have to go back to the drawing board and and try something else. It can, you know, it can take time. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think it is sort of odd that we started with that one because it is sort of the 20% or even the, the last 1%, you might even call it. 
Um, but the other four habits are, are maybe the more, you know, applicable because everyone wants to be that, uh, I guess, snowflake or that special person <laughs> with the, you know, definitely can't have the gluten. Um, but I think the other four habits sort of get at the heart of like most people probably have a little bit of work to do in one of those four areas, uh, the other four habits, right, to, to actually see, you know, the people who think they're not recovering fast enough and think they need some su- super supplement actually probably just need to eat. You know, yeah, I'm diet. so glad you said that because actually, you know, you know, individuality or individualization is important, but in in the current, you know, endurance diet public discourse, the individual individuality thing is way overplayed, mm-hmm. um, and there are a variety of reasons for that. One of them is that, you know, when if if you are an adherent to a particular fad diet, and some research comes out that proves that your diet doesn't work, what, one, of the, one of sort of the intellectual fallbacks or dodges that, you know, it, it's sort of reflexive is you'll say, oh, yeah, well, everyone's unique. So in yeah. that study, they, they found, and what it is, it's just fundamentally intellectually dishonest. Yeah. <laughs> it's anti-science. So you have this N equals one meme for people who don't know science, like N equals one signifies a study with only one subject. And so, you know, if a, if a study comes out that proves that, you know, X diet is bad for endurance, its adherence will, adherence will say, oh, well, you know, N equals one. Um, and I'm sort of on a mission in my news resolution in 2017 is to expose the, the, the fundamentally <laughs> anti-science nature of that meme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild out there right now. I don't even know if studies and stuff now, everything you read about how it's like really crooked how things get approved and put through and then no one can read them anyhow. So it's, and that's part of the reason I wanted a real world based argument for, you know, what I believe is uh, the optimal way for endurance athletes to eat. Monkey mm-hmm. see, monkey do. Yeah. So to the next, you know, the, one of the, the next habits would be quality, um, eating good quality. Now to me, you know, you're talking about, uh, I don't know, was it Kenya? Uh, yeah, Kenya with the corn-based sort of starch. And to me, that's, you know, not super nutrient-dense, but it is a carb source for sure. So how do, how do you define that quality when you have such a variety between diets? Yeah, so, you know, diet quality is a concept that is, um, it's not talked about much uh, in in the general public, but um, it's used a lot in nutritional science, and uh, for a nutrition scientist, a high-quality diet is simply a healthy diet, and a healthy diet is determined by its effects on health. So, uh, you know, scientists have come up with uh, various indices of diet quality, um, and they're just based on large epidemiological studies where they will look at how much fruit people eat, for example, and they will also look at the rate of certain types of cancer in the same group, and they will try to see if the people who eat the most fruit have the lowest risk of those types of cancer or whatever. So you can establish certain associations, and there's been a lot of this research that's been done, and, and you know, so cumulatively, it has uh, resulted in, in the ability to tease out certain patterns that, you know, define a high quality diet. And, you know, so, you know, there's, there's 
you know, pretty much kind of a consensus at, th- at this point as to what that is. A, a high-quality diet is one that includes uh, a balance of all of the, the familiar natural unprocessed food types, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, uh, fish, uh, you know, dairy, whatever. Um, so actually, uh, ugali is a very high-quality food. It's, it's, first of all, <laughs> when you eat something in Kenya, it <laughs> has the same name as what you eat here. <laughs> it's, it's not the same. So everything yeah. tastes different. Um, but, you know, that's whole grain corn. It's just, it's a whole grain. All the research, you know, on, on whole grains shows that, that, that they are healthful. So should you eat only whole, <laughs> whole grain corn? No. Um, but it is, that type of food is certainly uh, part of what, you know, would constitute a, a high-quality diet. Yeah, well, and I think you kind of touched on something there, too, as far as, like, the quality of the, the food source, right? So we're talking, you know, grass-fed beef versus, you know, corn-fed, like, factory-farmed kind of stuff. Yeah, so that, that's what, when the average non-scientist thinks diet quality, that's where they go. Mm-hmm. So they don't think, you know, a nutrition scientist thinks about, types of foods that are associated with positive health outcomes. Uh, the average Joe or Jane thinks, oh, a good cut of meat versus a bad cut of meat. You know, so not, not the type of food, but the, you know, the quality in the more familiar sense. Mm-hmm. The one that actually matters a lot more is the first one, the scientific one. You know, the, I, you know, I, I point out in the book that all of the research showing, for example, that fruit is good for you, makes no distinction between organic or non-organic or where it comes from. It's just fruit, all fruit, any fruit. So if you're, and that's important to keep in mind, because if you're going from not eating any fruit, yeah. to <laughs> contemplating adding it to your diet, you know, don't set the bar too high. Go ahead and buy like whatever's at the, the closest supermarket. Don't worry about it. But yes, there is a sort of another type of quality, which also that sort of next level, and it, it certainly matters too. I advocate for it for a lot of reasons. You know, it's you know it's the power of consumership. If you demand better quality stuff, you know the people who grow and and supply you know the food we eat have to sort of respond, and sort of then we all get to eat better that way. So, yeah, both both types of quality certainly matter, but but by all means, start with uh, the scientific version. Yeah, it's definitely a very American idea, too. I mean, I know, obviously, a lot of countries don't really even have the the option of which kind of crop they're eating from. Uh, But I noticed when we were over in Europe, like, getting a lot of organic stuff just wasn't even, it wasn't at the supermarket for the most part. So for there, it's it's just not as done, I I guess. I think quality may just be better. (laughs) Yeah, there is that. Yeah, well, in in Kenya, you can't find non-organic anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like they're not they're not feeding them corn and soy. Like they're they're eating their corn. Yeah, they're actually yep, eating their exactly. corn, not in syrup yep. form. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you sort of brought up the idea of. Um, I think it's going to be a segue, anyhow. But the idea of you know we're thinking about this quality or this like super crazy uh element you know that we're going to add um and i think the the whole high fat 
diet is sort of the same way. Like the, the common public thinks they need to go to this extreme of zero carbohydrates, but they forget that even just diet aside, like endurance training alone produces fat adaptation just by endurance training. And, you know, there's just eating a decent diet and, you know, spacing your meals and stuff produces fat adaptation. And most people aren't doing that, that first step. So, um, the, the next area you have is eat carbohydrates, which I think is a good message for people. But what did you find, you know, you, you talked to mostly elites. Um, did you find anyone doing super high fat or any sort of fat manipulation? Yeah. So, you know, if I had done this, if I had done my research two years earlier, I think I would have found uh, a little less of it. But, you know, it definitely has, that's sort of like the, the positive outcome of, you know, the interest in recent interest in fat is that um, elite athletes in a, in a variety, uh, pretty much all over the world now, are, um, are experimenting with, or not experimenting, it's just become a, it's become a best practice to perform selected carbohydrate-restricted workouts or to go through uh, short periods of low-carbohydrate um, uh, eating, you know, maybe, you know, for the sake of shedding a little bit of uh, off-season weight gain or what have you. So that's why I call the, uh, you know, habit three, uh, eat carb-centered, not eat high carb. Mm-hmm. So, so carbohydrates are sort of the foundation um, of the diet, but it's not all carbs all the time. Um, so, you know, you'll have, um, you know, I've seen this more and more. Um, it, you know, it's, I think, Cyclists really sort of got onto it first, but now uh, I've, I've seen you know uh, you know professional running teams doing this type of, of you know you know they'll do you know long runs or even some interval runs um, after sort of a no carb breakfast and not taking in any sports drinks or whatever during them. But then they go right back to you know you know a high carb breakfast, high carb lunch, high carb dinner, you know what have you, and that seems to to work really well. You know, I, I take all my cues from from what the elites do. So, you know, I'm I'm doing this uh, myself. And, and what what you find is that you know to get back to to the point you made that you 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 quote unquote fat adapt just by virtue of being an endurance athlete. Um, you know, I, I had an experience, uh, I guess, at the beginning of this year where I ran uh, a marathon carb fasted. It was the, the longest distance I'd ever, I was training for a 50 mile run. And so I had, I cut myself off from carbohydrate at dinner the night before. This is the Napa Valley marathon. Mm. My breakfast the morning, uh, the morning of was zero carb. I just wanted something to settle my hunger. And then I, I warmed up for a mile, ran the entire marathon, drinking nothing but water. And then at the finish line, I didn't even stop. I, I ran another two miles back to my hotel because I wanted to get in a total of about 29 and training one. And I, I felt absolutely fantastic. Um, I started off really conservative and slow. So I'm like, you know, I'll blow up, but I ended up just hugely negative splitting this thing. I think I ran like a three Oh five, you know, got back to the hotel and still felt like I was miles away from bonking. Now, if, if one of these like high fat zealots had done that, they would break their arm patting themselves on the back <laughs> for, for their That's high exactly fat diet. exactly what I was thinking, yep. Yeah, well, you know, the day before and the day after I did this, I ate 
carbs by the truckload, like as I normally do. Like, so the people who go on, on these diets, they're not comparing it to anything worthy of comparison. <laughs> like they're not actually well, that's doing what, say. what you, you didn't win the marathon though. Did, oh, did I not win the marathon? <laughs> no, but that's the important part that all often gets mixed right in the social media posts is I did oh, this, yeah. but okay. Like you're a human you should be able to cover that distance, right? Like, but, yeah. It, and it's it, interestingly, uh, yeah, like two weeks later I did another marathon as a training run um, but it was not a carb fasted one, but still I wasn't racing. I was training and I ran like 14 minutes faster and it was just because I had carbs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think what's, what's interesting with that habit though, is the, the carb centered versus high carb. I'd say the, the average American, like the, the sad diet slash like the diet you eat when you first get into endurance training of like carb loading and I can eat this third donut and all that kind of stuff. I think we're, I think uh, carb centered doesn't necessarily mean that's an okay practice. What do you mean? Well, just the idea of uh, sticking to the, you know, four donut meals and gels all the time and stuff. Uh, So, you know, carb-centered, yes. Uh, Bad carbs or, you know, junk carbs and 90% carbs, 10% fat, probably not the best diet strategy overall. Yeah, and I I think that's a big part of the reason that some people who who switch to low-carb diets get results that they're happy with, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, the, what they're, they're crediting an overall reduction in carbohydrate for the good results. But really, in my estimation, <laughs> what really got them the good results was cutting out the bad carbs. Yeah. And, and if they would just allow me to, I could give them even better results by <laughs> good, putting the good carbs back into their diet. But, but, you know, the high fat crowd, they, they never try that experiment. They never, they never try the endurance diet before going to to low carb mm-hmm. because if they did, they wouldn't. Yeah, that sounded like it didn't make sense. No, no, it, it definitely <laughs> definitely made sense. So then, for the regular person, I mean, we're talking sort of elites a lot. It, it seems like, but you know, if you have someone who's training, say five to eight hours, you know, nothing super long, um, you know, a little bit of intensity sprinkled throughout the week, but nothing crazy. Um, you know, they're going to be on the lower end of that spectrum, like maybe not eating that, that full corn diet that we're seeing in Kenya, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's, so, so there's an automatic scaling that occurs, you know, if, if you need 2000 calories a day to sustain your lean body composition and your training load, you're going to eat a lot less carbohydrate than someone who needs 5,000 a day to maintain their lean uh, body composition and training load. Mm-hmm. So if you just eat the right amount of food, and but still keep it carb-centered, and that's exactly why I say carb-centered versus high-carb, because if you're eating 2,000 calories a day, you know, it's not high-carb by in, in any absolute way, but it, it's still, you, you would still want, I, I would maintain... In point of fact, the, the less you train, the less it matters. <laughs> the, the macronutrient ratio, um, you know, that, that's just the way it is. But I, I still, I still, 
I, I would like a carb-centered diet to be the starting point for everyone, regardless of where they're training, because um, it's it's just it's a happier, more natural way to eat. And if if those carbs are all from high-quality food sources, you know, it, it, you know, it's just it's absolutely not going going to hurt you. Um, and you can do you know a low-carb thing if you if you really need to lose weight for a short period, uh, whatever. But I just think it's a it's a nice starting point because, you know, we've been talking about performance, but, you know, there are other things matter too, you know, uh, psychology, like, you know, the sustainability of a a diet, like every natural, er, every major natural cultural cuisine on earth is carb centered in some way. It's, you know, it's rice in the far East, it's bread here, it's potatoes in Ireland and actually a bunch of other places, South America. So it's just like, you know, the, 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 the more the less radically you uh, alter you know familiar culturally ingrained eating patterns in the search of performance, the more sustainable you're going to find it. So that in, in itself is a reason to stay carb centered, even if you know you only run three miles a day. And quite honestly, from a performance perspective, you could succeed on any macronutrient ratio. Mm-hmm. Cool. So the next habit I wanted to go on to then was eat enough, and I don't know if I phrased it quite the same as the book, but um, and, and this is one that I know a lot of, I have a couple of younger clients and uh, especially my female clients, but even younger guys, I t- find it hard for them. Is there a way that you can suggest that people know they're eating enough? Yes, it, it is. I mean, the single most reliable way to regulate the amount of food you eat is by listening to and obeying your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, millions of years went into our appetite regulatory system. And so there's this whole modern notion that you can't trust your appetite, that, you know, if you listen to your appetite, you are bound to overeat. But that's absurd. I mean, think about, like, all the animals in the wild. Like, do they count calories? Like, do they weigh their portions on a scale? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they just... They eat when they're hungry and they stop when they're full, and you don't see like a major problem of obesity in sparrows, or you know, <laughs> or, or what uh, that aren't in like central. Park. I was just gonna say I don't know the squirrels in New Brunswick where I went to college were uh, pretty beefy. <laughs> but that is because people people feed them. Yep, <laughs> and that might be you know a good you know people who are on the standard American diet or North American diet. Um, are the same as the squirrels eating in New Brunswick. I mean, because that that works for sure, and, and you know, one I, I tend to like the sort of a lot of the paleo stuff uh, is my vice, I guess. But um, you know, what I like about it is that when you're eating those nutrient dense foods, it is hard to overeat because you get really full, right? And the problem is when you're eating donuts, donuts <laughs> you know, it, it it definitely is easier to overeat, like those squirrels. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the uh, landscapers just showed up, had some ambient noise there from the weed whacker, but I I can move. I've got a cordless That's phone. Okay. I so wondered I'm if moving. we were getting close to a speaker or something. Uh, so, okay, now back up. Where were we? Sorry. Um, so just, uh, I was saying, you know, Molly mentioned these squirrels that were overweight because they're eating right. a lot of, you know, and, and a lot of North American type foods. Um, and, and I think, you know, my vice is that I, I do like the paleo diet. Um, and one of my, the things I do like about it is that it is based on nutrient dense foods that are hard to, 
to overeat. And so whether we're talking about just quality or whatever, um, I, I think that listen to your body works, but is the first step that people get off of that, that stuff before they start listening to their body? Because, yeah, my body wants to eat, like, seven donuts in a sitting, but it doesn't want to eat that yeah. much salad. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. Actually, the single hardest food to overeat, it would be a boiled potato, which, you know, a lot of the low-carb crowd, of course, they avoid because yeah. it's supposed to make you Same. fat. Same. High glycemic. What are mm-hmm. you talking about? It's like sugar. <laughs> now, Peter eats, like, ten sweet potatoes a day, yeah. so... She is definitely carb-centered. Yeah. Well, two, two things will, uh, will help you. So, yeah, so anyway, you know, there's this idea that you can't trust your appetite, but the truth is you can. You just can't trust it in, uh, you know, the modern food environment. Um, so, yeah, so most people can't. You know, the, the average Joe and Jane can't. Two things will, will help you. One is exercising because, you know, our appetite is – you know, it was evolutionarily, it was, it was honed when everyone was active. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you are an exerciser, of course, if you're an endurance athlete, you are, you know, appetite is extremely sensitive to an act- activity level. So your appetite becomes more reliable, more trustworthy if you work out. The second thing that will make your appetite more reliable is eating natural foods, the foods that are similar to what our ancestors ate when our appetite regulatory mechanism did evolve. So yeah, that's, that gets back to what you were, what you were just saying. It's like, if you, if you eat high quality natural foods, um, it's just a lot easier to avoid overeating, but still, um, there still remains, um, a residue, um, that you have to handle with just choosing not to eat when you're not hungry (laughs) Mm -hmm. because, you know, in the environment we live in, we're just bombarded with, messages telling us to eat um and you know food is 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 cheap it's accessible it's delicious um we're sort of in various ways ordered uh by you know the corporation supplying it to to eat and so you have to find ways to you know push back against that um and but it's doable you know there's you know I, i mentioned that animals in the wild you know don't don't overeat well guess who else doesn't else doesn't overeat human infants Mm-hmm. You know, there's research showing that, uh, you know, when, when human, uh, human infants are, are presented with the opportunity to, to take in more food than they need, they don't take it. They stop. And somewhere around, you know, toddlerhood, in our environment, children, young children become socialized to tune out their appetite and overeat, and they start eating, you know, based on head hunger, the, the, the idea that it would be nice to have another donut versus belly hunger, which is always still there. And there's other research showing that um, people can reconnect with that. Um, it takes just, you just have to, in, in the book, I describe basically how to do it, just how to just perform a sort of reset so that you learn to listen to the messages from your body that you, that actually you know, are telling you, you know, what calories you need and what calories you don't need versus just having, liking the idea of eating something right now. Mm-hmm. So now borrowing from maybe racing weight, and you also have a cookbook for racing weight as well, if people are interested in that, that concept in that book. But if we're, you know, a normal person, again, getting into sort of being a master's 30, 40, 50 years old, um, you know, working family, um, and doing some endurance training, and you know, maybe everyone's got that 10 pounds, I think pretty much every one of my clients says five or 10 pounds, they want to lose five or 10 pounds. 
Um, the fakest can, weight yeah, loss goal always, ever, by the way. Always. Um, is there? Can you, can you give us some teasers, sort of, from the racing weight concepts that maybe those people would would be able to benefit from? Yeah. So you know, one thing I have found is that um, people almost always uh, look at their own eating habits through rose-colored glasses. And I have people come to me all the time and say, you know, I just, I'm, I'm doing everything you tell me to. And, you know, in the books, and I've read them three or four times and I just can't lose those five or 10 pounds. And, you know, when I interrogate them, I find that, you know, they're waking up in the middle of the night and having a bag of potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something comes out like, so, uh, um, so what, one tool that is helpful is I have actually have a smartphone app for my diet quality score system, and getting people to start using that is super helpful because it just makes it, it quantifies you know the quality of their diet so they can't fool themselves anymore. So just the exercise of you know just you know it's really easy, a lot easier than counting calories. Just um, just you know logging the foods you eat by type. Yeah, and seeing what your overall diet quality score is, and there it is right in front of you. It just it makes you, you know, pay attention more, and it makes you realize, wow, you know, I actually wasn't eating quite as well as I, as I thought I was. And and that alone, it's not the only way to get those extra five or ten pounds off. But and not everyone is eating worse than they think they are. But it it, it, it is very helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think even just the idea of having to write it down somewhere, like even like not calorie counting, like you said, just putting it into the app, like you have to then admit that you had it. Uh, (laughs) So I think that's usually like the biggest, you know, step for getting people to realize, oh, crap, I just ate, you know, 10 Reese's peanut butter cups, not like the handful that I thought was like two. Yeah, it's an accountability thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, any any other thing? So once they once they look at their diet quality, they have it listed. What's sort of the next weight loss thing? Um, so that was actually something I wanted to talk about. Where you've talked a bunch about just like instead of subtracting a bunch from your diet, adding better foods. Yep. So talk yeah. about that. Yeah, just thinking in terms of uh, substituting. Um, so. You know, you can sort of just, uh, and actually I go through this exercise in the book, uh, the, the new book as well, where you just sort of, you write down what you ate today or what you normally eat or what have you, and just um, item by item, try and identify a better version. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the men's health, eat this, not that mm-hmm. concept. Um, and, you know, that, that can be very easy to do if you had white rice, have brown rice the next time. Um, if you had, uh, you know, a, a coffee drink with a bunch of stuff in it, have just black coffee next time. There, you know, there's a million of these types of substitutions. It could even be something like you had a hamburger, and next time it could be a hamburger with a whole wheat bun with a higher quality beef with a bunch of veggies on top of it. You know, you can make a better version, uh, a higher quality version of just about everything, and, and, you know, the net result is that you get the same level of satiety out of fewer calories, and you shed excess body fat. Yeah, and I will say, as someone who really loves uh, making lists and doing, like, the, you know, 
this is me in a year and like write a narrative about that doing that uh-huh. like perfect day diary thing was like one of my my favorite parts of the book so <laughs> yes I'm, I'm getting good i'm getting good feedback on the perfect day concept <laughs> it's a fun one because it kind of turns like healthy eating into this weird like lifestyle makeover kind of thing that makes you feel really good about it instead of thinking about it in terms of like grumpy weight loss yeah, because well, the thing that trips when you start talking habits, the thing that trips people up is, oh God, habits are, are for a lifetime. Yeah, you know, it, and it makes it makes the idea of you know eating better really daunting. It's like, oh, I've got to do this forever. But you know, the point I make in the book is that we're really only talking about doing something for one day, and then doing it again tomorrow. Yep, <laughs> and then doing it. So you know, if you can come up with one day of healthy eating that you like. Yeah. You've won, you know, you're home free, you know, you just have to do it again tomorrow. And of course, you know, variety is great, but you can sort of add that in later. I mean, if if your diet is like really atrocious at this point, you know, that can be very liberating just to think, okay, I can find enough foods, healthy foods I like to make up one perfect day. Um, And then, you know, if you get to the end of the end of that day and you're like, man, that wasn't so bad. Wake up and do it tomorrow. I love that. Um, I'm glad we're doing this episode sort of right right when people are starting to think New Year's resolutions and everything. I think when it comes out, people are going to be starting to hit the wall on their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> so this is actually going to be a really timely episode. <laughs> yes. Yes, we can, we can clean up the mess. Exactly. All right. I think we'll leave. We, we've sort of touched on the fifth habit a little bit, but why don't we leave that as a, a suspense? You got to buy the book to get the, the fifth habit and, and learn more about it. Um, and yeah. Get them in the proper order as well. We've mixed them up a bit today, but um, yeah, yeah, I think Matt, do you have anything else that you wanted to, to touch on or let people know about? Yeah. You know, just, you know, one thing I, I will kind of toss in is that a lot of people, when they're presented with this concept, uh, you know, this is the way the world's best athletes eat and you should too. They'll, they'll often come back, especially if they have a contrarian nature. Oh, well, you know, those people are made out of, you know, Krypton, you know, they're, they're, you know, genetically you know, in their training, they're nothing like me. So their diet po- can't possibly apply to me. Um, and that's actually baloney. Like genetically, we really aren't that different from, from the best athletes in the world. There's just only a handful of genes that make them different from us, and they have nothing to do with how food is metabolized and digested. And more important, uh, you know, when, you know, the people I work with who, I mean, I put everyone on the endurance diet. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's the only solution I have to offer. And, you know, I've had people lose 100, 150 pounds eating like Chris Froome, you know, so it absolutely does apply um, to, you know, the, the full, the full gamut. Absolutely. And for the record, the comic book nerd in me is screaming at that Krypton comment because it's wildly inaccurate, but I'm going to let it slide because it's the holidays. <laughs> I almost, I almost said plutonium. I don't know. I, I could have handled that one, but when we get into Superman references, my, my nerd radar goes off. Damn! I I got all the way to the end of the interview and yep. put my foot in yep. it. Well, we're there we go. Here. Yeah, and, <laughs> and we're finished. Awesome. I'll I'll send you a list of acceptable superhero yeah. metaphors Some you can metaphors. use from now on. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, awesome. Before we before we finish up here, where can people get the book? Where can people find you on the interwebs? Yep. So uh, presumably, my publisher has the book available everywhere books are sold, uh, which I don't think is in any stores anymore. <laughs> everything everything is online everything now. Is online. But yeah, so the online place to start would be perhaps my website, which is mattfitzgerald.org. Perfect. And then what about Twitter and Instagram? Yes, Twitter is at mattfitwriter. I have an Instagram account that I don't use. It's probably the same. Yeah, I, I think it is. I'm, I'm always shocked if I do see you post. And actually, we realized we have a we have a friend in common who was on one of our first podcasts, uh, Marco Altini, with the Elite HRV app. Uh, Aha! Or HRV yeah. for training. Yeah, don't mix I got that up. Oh god! You're lucky they're on good terms. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I've seen you on Instagram lately. Is oh really? Have his... you guys been hanging out? Marco's running up a storm right now. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing some amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. We will end on that note. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time on the day before New Year's Eve to chat with us. Now I have more resolutions to write. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Nice to chat with you. Likewise. All right. Bye, Matt. Have a happy New Year. You too. All right. Take care. Later. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, to check out all of the show notes for this episode, you can head over to consummateathlete.com and we would love to hear from you about what you thought about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Molly J. Herford and at Peter Glassford. And we would also love it if you would pop over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast so you can tell every time a new episode, a new sport comes out. And if you would leave us a review, let us know how you're, how you're liking it, how we're doing, if there's anything you'd like to hear more of, that would be amazing. And you can find us over on Facebook now, uh, facebook.com backslash consummate athlete. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will see you next time.